place it comfortably. So this is our third day of session on Go. Uh, the, the title of this talk, to give it a title, is Self-Absorption and Flow. And I want to look a little more closely at the practice principles and what they mean for our practice. Um, we repeat them all the time and uh, anything you repeat all the time can become a little bit habitual. So it's important to become really conscious at times of what um, is the, um, the meaning of those practice principles and how they guide us. Um, they're a very good guide and in many ways they're a modern version of the Four Noble Truths, that the suffering, a cause of suffering, an end of suffering, and a path that leads to the end of suffering. So the first line, caught in the self-centred dream, only suffering is like the first one, holding to self-centred thoughts, like grasping and, and aversion to, grasping to self-centred thoughts, exactly the dream, that's, that's what the dream is, all of that self-absorption. Um, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, there is a, a way out of this when we connect to life and we get, we burst the bubble of self-absorption and we get outside of it, um, then there's a, a peace in that and there, there's a way and the way is being each moment and that way is embodied in compassion, you know, a connection with others. So it's really, in some ways, it resonates very strongly with the Four Noble Truths. It's just a much more um, contemporary way of, of addressing it. And in this talk tonight, I'd like, to, um, I'd like to put together how basic Dharma practice um, resonates with a lot of modern understandings of psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, because sometimes when we, we understand it in more contemporary language rather than um, language that comes from, you know, 2,000 years ago in a different culture, sometimes it just gives us a different angle and <coughs> understanding what it is we're actually doing. Um, last year, late last year, uh, I remember I gave a talk which was called pathological self-reflection. And uh, it was based on um, uh, an understanding of Marita therapy, which is a Japanese therapy, which is based on Zen. It's, it follows Zen very, very closely. And there are also um, some contemporary forms of therapy uh, I wouldn't say it's mainstream yet, but it's 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 been researched um, around depression, anxiety, stress. Depression, anxiety, stress. We in psychologists have what we call a DAS scale, depression, anxiety, stress scale, which we give frequently to people just to get a snapshot of how mentally distressed or emotionally distressed might people might be in their life. But, but depression, anxiety and stress comes pretty close to, maybe not exactly the same, but pretty close to dukkha. Mm -hmm. That's the na nature of dukkha, like low mood, restless, um, 
on edge, not really landing in the present moment, and so on. And um, and the probably the most common view of the cause of of uh, depression, anxiety, and stress in a contemporary sense um, is that self-absorption is a side effect of it, right? But there are emerging views that are coming along, which is really consistent, exactly consistent with the Dharma, um, that self-absorption is not a side effect of depression and anxiety and stress. It's the cause of it, right? It's the other way around. It doesn't, doesn't follow. It actually causes it, or maybe it loops around in the circle like samsara. It, and, and it spins and it maintains itself. The Dalai Lama apparently um, was quoting research that said, that found that the more people use the words I, me and my and their language is that the greater mental and physical health problems they have and the earlier they die. Um, so self-absorption um, or pathological self-reflection, whatever you might want to call it, is not um, some innocuous experience that we have. You know, it has a, an, an enormous impact on us. And uh, there are maybe two ways you can... Um, it's not all the same, the self-absorption and the self-absorption. Often um, self-absorption, like constantly thinking about yourself, analysing yourself, trying to work yourself out, um, is, is often associated with narcissism, right, where people have either very overt or covert grandiose ideas of who they are, you know, and they spend a lot of time um, fantasising about how wonderful they are, you know, and then get very angry when people don't validate it. That's one form of self-absorption, but there there are other forms of self-absorption that are not necessarily what you would call narcissistic per se, but people who can be depressed, anxious, stressed, and that's all of us to one degree or another. Um, it's as though by being self-absorbed and analysed and thinking and trying to work out and fix our anxiety or our low mood or whatever or stress that comes along in life um, it's as though by doing that we can work it out and we'll regulate it and we'll kind of keep it at bay we'll keep it a little bit of a distance by thinking about it so it's not necessarily filled with grandiosity um, those people often have um, the opposite of that they have an experience of very low self-worth but nevertheless all of that thinking, overthinking, overanalyzing, trying to work yourself out in some more contemporary forms of psychology, as well as in Buddhism, is seen very clearly as a cause for that, right? not a side effect of it. <clears throat> not only is it... Um, judgmental quality of how we may be self-absorbed, which often um, involves a lot of self-judgment, for instance. Um, 
but it's actually how much we do it as well, like the quantity of we do it. There's a big difference between maybe being self-absorbed for half an hour a day compared to 12 hours a day, right? Imagine going around in your head, you know, trying to work things out or build things up or whatever, and, uh, and being caught in that. Um, it's a very unpleasant experience. Now, if we go back to Cohen study, there is a koan which um, maybe it's not exactly the same as that, but it resonates with it, if I remind you of it, and that's um, Bodhisattva, uh, Bodhidharma pacifies the mind. Right? And if I remind you of the koan, his student who becomes the second founding teacher um, says, goes to Bodhidharma and says, um, I've been searching for my mind everywhere, but I cannot find it, right? and, um, and Bodhidharma says, after some time of teaching, well, bring me your mind and I'll pacify it, and the second founding teacher says, but I can't find it anywhere, right? and Bodhidharma says, well, there, I've pacified your mind. But it, you can imagine um, the second founding teacher, when he's caught in his searching for his mind, it's kind of like if I can just find out what my mind is and work out what it is and pin it down right, and know my true self, then all of my problems will go away. Uh-huh. It's like he's starting on a false assumption in the first place and he just keeps searching for something that cannot be pinned down. And at that point where we realise it can't be pinned down, it can't be fixed up, it can't be worked out, boom, right? The light goes on. Uh-huh. Then there's peace. You know, there's no more self-preoccupation with searching for something that doesn't have any substance to it. Right? So when we get self-absorbed in low mood, anxiety, stress and all of that, existential angst, it, it's a version of the same thing, mm-hmm. and yet we think we keep on we keep on doing it. So, if I do it just once more, if I reflect again and analyse again, um, this time maybe I'll just work something out, uh, and it's, it doesn't go anywhere. Do you, you know what it, um, it must be like? You know, well I I know what it's like because I can be like that too, but um, because I I play the flute. When, you, when you're learning a new tune, you're all over the place. You know, you, you get little bits of it and then you lose the rhythm and you stop and then you start again and then you make a mistake and you start again and you go on for a while. And, and then eventually, as you practice over and over again, you get a, a sense of flow to it. You know, and you get the timing right and, the, and the, the notes right and all just sort of flows together you know, in, and makes musical sense, right? Um, music has a flow to it. Um, but being caught in the self-absorbed mind that's constantly analysing something must be like learning, like trying to learn a flute tune all of your life, right? And, and keeping on making mistakes, there's never any flow to it. So it's very, very disruptive. Right? Or a- another, another um, analogy that comes to mind um, reminds me when um, uh, Diana and I were 
having a holiday in, in Sicily and we got lost in this town, you know, and we kept going round and round and round in these back streets trying to get out and getting more stressed about it because we didn't know where we were going, you know, and keep on searching. And, and that's like being, that's kind of like self-absorption, just going round in circles trying to get out of something and you just get more stressed, you know. And eventually you get on the freeway, right? And, and when you get on the freeway, it's a, a different experience. It's a sense of flow to it. Um, a common um, statement that people make um, when they're doing session, you know, and we, we can have a way of getting out of the self-absorption, is people very, very often, I remember Robert Aitken used to say, people used to say this to him quite frequently, and people say it to me, it's like you're driving down a freeway, you know, and it's like, it's just, there's no, no obstructions, you're just flowing along on the freeway, right, rather than caught up in the back streets going round and round. So there's a sense of flow happens to our experience. And it's becoming very well recognised in contemporary psychology, as it's also been known in Taoism and in Zen, that a state of flow is very essential to our sense of well-being and to our mental health. And in many senses, the Dharma and Zen practice in Buddhism is, is a way of cultivating very good mental health, right? So sort of a relaxed, confident, grounded, connected, intimate experience with life. That, that would be the ultimate of mental health. Mm -hmm. So flows very closely associated with that experience. And when they do research with people who are, are, are quite disturbed, like people who have um, personality disorders, like that degree of, um, that level of, of distress and, and suffering in their life, they don't, they, they, they describe that they don't have a sense of flow in their experience. And how really could you have a sense of flow if you're constantly self-absorbed and trying to work yourself out, it kind of, it's very disruptive all the time. It's like you can't get, you can't get on a roll. Mm -hmm. So, um, a sense of flow is very, very important. William James, um, the really great American philosopher and um, father of modern psychology in many ways that people quote a lot these days, was the one who coined that term, the stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And uh, a stream of consciousness is like a river. There's a sense of flow and continuity to it. And when it's disrupted all the time and disjointed, it leads to a very unsettled, unsatisfactory type of life experience. So what happens through Dharma practice, what happens through meditation, we we shift from this self-absorbed, clunky kind of way of being in the world into a sense of flow. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, um, uh, as, as in Taoism in particular, do you know, the watercourse way, do you know, streams, rivers, flowing water is seen as being a great metaphor for the Tao, for the just the way things are. And it's, and it's expressing transience. It comes back to that basic 
Dharma principle that life is, is transient. And if you're holding back on the transience or you're trying to get outside of it or you're trying to stop it, then you'll create disruption in your life and dissatisfactoriness. But to go with the flow, as that you know that saying is, to, to really go with the flow is to really deeply understand that everything is transient and you have no resistance to the transience. That's what flow is. Flow is the nature of anything anyway, the way the life is in that transient sense. But as soon as we're trying to get outside of it and comment on it or disrupt it or be fearful of it, then it creates a whole lot of sort of disconnect and problems in our life. <clears throat> you may remember too, um, I think one of Joko's, in my mind, one of Joko's best um, Dharma talks and essays is that one in her second book, Nothing Special, on whirlpools, whirlpools and rivers, or it's about whirlpools anyway. Mm -hmm. And um, that in itself is a little analogy about self-absorption and the flow of life there together. Because we're, when we're in self-absorption, we're in a whirlpool. Right? We're spinning around and we're spinning around and spinning around. And we get the sense that that's me, the whirlpool is me. But the whirlpool has never been disconnected from the river. It's all part of the same flow of, of the stream, right? But we get this illusion that it's, that's what I am. Mm -hmm. And uh, even a whirlpool is not separate from the stream. It just thinks it is because it's got this form, you know, and it kind of sucks debris down into it. Right? It's murky. But that's what happens. That's a really good metaphor. So when we realise through self-absorption, pathological self-reflection, we're creating this little whirlpool which reinforces its own existence and that's all we're doing and we stop thinking so much about ourselves, then we join the great river of life. You know? And then it's not a problem. We're just flowing along. And even with the transience of life when it's easy to be in the sense of flow when favourable conditions are going our way. Everything's, the weather's fine, you know, financially we're doing okay, we've got a job, the relationship's okay, everything's favourable, right? It's easier to flow along in that. But what happens when circumstances are unfavourable, you know, and your boss sacks you? and someone abuses you on the street, you know, and your wife leaves you, or your husband leaves you, you know, something like that. What happens when, when you know, the comfortable life gets disrupted? Can we, can we be with the flow of that? That's the real challenge for a Dharma practitioner, how we meet unfavourable circumstances in our life and the pain and the unpleasantness that comes out of it. If we go towards it and we embrace it, um, then, then we move with the flow of that experience. But if we put that, the brakes on, do you know, and get outraged that it's occurred, do you know, and go into all kinds of self-absorptions about why it happened, then we get, we get stuck again. So that really is, that really is the great challenge for all of us. Um, and um, I think one of the 
one of the great teachings that Joko brought to to contemporary Western Zen, you know, she really hammered that home all the time. It's just being with life as it is, whether it's favourable or unfavourable. And finally, um, uh, another way of understanding the importance of flow. I had had a um, experience once, um, not when I was a, not when I was young and a Zen student in Japan, but when I went back as a a tourist one year, and I was standing outside the um, temple complex where I used to practice, and it was then a tourist centre, and they bring in tourists through. And um, there was a priest. I could hear the priest inside taking them through and giving a a commentary was speaking quite a loud voice through the paper screens and so on. And um, and then this um, wonderful um, loud singing voice came out that in, in the way that he was instructing these tourists. And he sang, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Right? And that was his way of describing sin to tourists, and exact, that is exactly what it is, uh-huh. is that life has this kind of dreamy kind of quality to it. Um, it's ephemeral, you know, it's empty, it's transient, and that is the experience that you come to in, in your life more and more um, as you practice. You're just rowing your boat gently down the stream, going down with the flow of the stream, and there's a dream-like ephemeral quality to it because there's nothing there's nothing solid and substantial about it. So as we practice we move from this very solid sense of tight, solid sense of who we think we are and what we're trying to hold on to in ourselves to protect ourselves or project ourselves in some way. And it just falls away, just melts away. As it melts away, we, we, we join the great river of life. And that is the experience of sin.